When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Forever. Dog. Hello and welcome back. I am Gabe Gonzalez and you're listening to The Queerty Podcast, a weekly show from Queerty and Forever Dog, where I'll be covering news, politics, and pop culture impacting the LGBTQ community. And I'll also invite a guest to hang out a bit, you know, reflect on the week and just generally keep it cute. We did find out Pose is ending this week, which is not so cute. So it's been a rough one for me. But thankfully, we do have some exciting headlines, including why an Oprah interview left one gay actor feeling regretful, which celebrity calls their spouse Hersbind and how Billy Eichner finally got a major Hollywood studio to pay for men who aren't cowboys to kiss on screen. And we've got a really fantastic guest. You've seen her on TV on shows like Will and Grace. You've seen her playing Grand Theft Auto on YouTube. And soon you'll be hearing her voice on a Netflix animated series. The legendary Miss Coco Peru is here with us. But first, uh, we've got to talk about those headlines in a little segment we like to call Catch Her Up. All right, our first headline of the day, Billy Eichner is making a movie. The movie will star Billy Eichner and is about two gay men who have difficulty with commitment navigating a presumably romantic situation. It is a gay rom-com starring and written by Billy Eichner. It's going to be called Bros, which is a title that brings back memories of internalized homophobia. (laughs) But I am excited not just to see a gay man, but a cantankerous and short-tempered one as well on screen. He is handsome and cranky, proving gay men can have it all. Our next story of the week, Niecy Nash opens up about her wedding and labeling her sexuality. So last year, I think it's fair to say that the queer community flipped out when Niecy Nash dropped photos of her wedding to musician Jessica Betts. This week, she was on TV to talk a bit more about her marriage, her spouse, and labeling her sexuality. She says she likes to call her new spouse, Jessica, husband. But she also says she doesn't feel like she was coming out in any way, simply marrying a person that she loves. She told Ellen, I wasn't living a sexually repressed life when I was married to men. I just loved them when I loved them. And now I love her. And, you know, some people might say I don't do labels feels like a, I guess, an invasive answer. You know, like language is labels. It's how we signify things to each other. But it is also a complicated conversation. Language is imperfect. It can feel loaded with subtext and meaning that that feels kind of heavy sometimes. Right. So Nisi actually shared a story about sitting down with her youngest daughter to talk about this. And her daughter encouraged Nisi Nash to figure out how she might identify. She said, quote, so we watched this whole thing uh, referring to a video about, you know, it was a thousand different things you could call yourself. But when I got through watching it, she was like, well, what are you? I said, confused. I'm more confused than ever. End quote. Look, I'm just glad Nisi Nash is happy. It's fine to be confused. You know, figuring things out, that's very human. It's normal. And she certainly doesn't owe me personally an explanation. All right. I'm deeply happy for her regardless. 
Our third story of the week, Nathan Lane talks about an Oprah interview that didn't go so well. In an interview with the Daily Beast, Nathan Lane actually talked about going on Oprah also in the 90s after doing The Birdcage and uh, talking to his publicist about whether or not Oprah would want to bring up the topic of his sexuality. You know, although he wasn't closeted to friends and family, he wasn't out publicly and he felt unease about making a big spectacle out of the announcement because it was his first big movie role. So in the interview, he said, now today, people don't feel a need to come out and make a big statement. People mention it in an acceptance speech. But at the time, it was very much a time of people being outed. And obviously, yes, I agree with Harvey Milk. The most political thing you could do is come out. But he was talking about to family and friends, not necessarily coming out in a public forum and telling the world that you're gay. And I wasn't ready or emotionally mature enough to deal with it. Just dealing with suddenly everybody knowing who you are is a shock. Uh, So it did make for an uncomfortable moment on the show when Oprah said, you're good at doing those girly things, I think is the way she phrased it. And then she asked, why is that? Which is like such a signature Oprah pivot. Maybe a move that she might not make today or even a phrase that way, given the more nuanced conversations we have surrounding, you know, people coming out on their own time and on their own terms. Uh, Nathan Lane says he actually wishes that, that he had had the, the courage to do it in that moment. And I think, you know, it's, it's interesting to think about how far we've come in terms of talking about sexuality and gender roles and also like, you know, Nathan Lane having his first movie role and being just like an out gay icon now is fantastic. So there are three stories from the week that really caught my eye. You know, here to discuss those and a bit more is our next guest who I am so excited to introduce to you. She's a performer who has toured the country doing one woman shows. You have seen her in movies like the indie film Trick on TV, in shows like Will and Grace and on the internet purchasing Tension Tamer Tea and interviewing icons like B. Arthur and Jane Fonda on her series Conversations with Coco. She's a genuine legend. She's been making people laugh for years and I am so honored to have the Coco Peru joining us on the podcast. How are you today? I'm doing well, Gabe. Thank you for that beautiful introduction. Absolutely. Thank you for being here. It's hard to pick things to highlight from your resume. It's a really impressive and and amazing one. I love it. That's really lovely because you know how sometimes you look at your own resume and you're thinking, boy, this is old. I have been doing Coco for 30 years and feel so fortunate that I survived a career, not only in show business, but on the lower rungs of show business. (laughs) Of course, drag nowadays is more popular, but Mm. back when I started, it wasn't it wasn't quite there yet. Well, that's true. Yeah, I think, you know, back when you started and, and you've talked about this in interviews, the internet wasn't really a place where you would go to see drag. There wasn't an Instagram, there wasn't Twitter, there weren't TV shows. Even the opportunities you had in film were considered kind of indie roles, right? You started off as a, a stage performer, as, as an entertainer who really had to hustle to get a live audience to, to show up to your shows. That's true. When was was Coco born and what has her, her evolution kind of been like up until now? I started writing probably my first show in 89, 90 and booked it before I even wrote it. (laughs) So, and that's the way I've lived my entire career is always trying to book things before I actually have them written because I find having a deadline is the key to success. If you don't have the drive to do it, you're on your own, book yourself deadlines. I started writing a show inspired by many things that were going on in my life. One, wanting to be an activist because I had been witness to the AIDS um, epidemic and act up in New York City. Just my own coming out and accepting everything I'd been taught to hate about myself. So there, there was this whole gay movement and I realized I had been told in college to butch up and I was too femme and all of this stuff. So finally being able to say, well, this is who I am. And instead of denying it, I'm going to dress it up and celebrate it. 
So did the genesis of this drag character kind of come from this exploration maybe of, of yourself? Was Coco born after this moment or in these moments of thinking about it? It was several things that happened all at once. And the other two parts of that story is I went to see Charles Bush in a play and I was totally enthralled by him playing the female lead that he had written for himself (laughs) and his sidekick, Julie Halston, who sounded like me, that native (laughs) New Yorker. They were like the embodiment of what my theater instructors were trying to drill out of me. And here they were on a New York (laughs) stage, of course, being celebrated. And so at that time, I was dating a Peruvian guy and he leaned over to me and he said, you could do this. And I remember being so exhilarated because this is before I did drag. And then I immediately felt shamed that he had seen that part of me. And I tried to butch up immediately and sort of reject, like, I don't think I could do that. But in the back of my mind, I was fantasizing about being on that stage. And at that time, I had also gone to visit Peru with him. And I met a drag queen there named Coco. We had a knock on this little door to get into this gay club. And it's very secretive. I was introduced, like I said, to this boy named Coco, who then came out on stage later as this beautiful Las Vegas showgirl. And I learned that he, she was very famous in Peru. And I thought, how is it possible that in a country that was at that time so Catholic, so homophobic, could a drag queen cross over and be loved by so many people? And I realized that there is something about owning yourself, the courage it takes to put yourself out there, to think outside the box, and then to live outside that box that is very empowering. And that the human brain is wired, I think, to recognize and even on some level respect that. And so when I created Coco, I was very clear that I was not pretending to be a woman. I was going to be a modern day two-spirited person who acknowledges both my male side. I just happened to be dressed as a female. And I told autobiographical stories and sang live, which at that time wasn't the thing to do. In fact, people were like, no one wants to hear a drag queen talk. And I said, well, I'm going to change that. I told autobiographical stories. They really resonated with people and it became an overnight kind of cult thing that people in New York were coming to see. And at that time, you had to get the newspapers to come see you. And I was spray painting (laughs) my little saying and pretending that I didn't know it was illegal. Well, whatever you could do to get eyes and get an audience. Do you remember what your catchphrase was in that moment that you were spray painting all over New York? Yeah, it said, Miss Coco Peru, she knows. I love that. The mystery. Yeah. And then, of course, that's what it was, was I wanted people to look at that and go, who is Miss Coco Peru? And what does she know? What does she know? What's her secret? (laughs) She's so alluring. I love that. (laughs) The other thing I just wanted to bring up, too, about being neither male or female and being both was that I wanted the audience to sit there and register in their brain, oh, it's a female, or he's pretending to be a female, but he keeps talking about being a boy, and then have that struggle in their brain of trying to figure it out, and then have that realization, oh, it doesn't matter. What matters is the story. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. 
is the human mm-hmm. experience. And I think that plays into what you were saying about Nisi earlier. It doesn't matter what that label is. It's the experience she's living that's important. It's that love that everybody's searching for that is really resonates with me. The words in that case for me, she doesn't have to label it. It's just when I see her Instagram and her and her partner so joyful, there's no label for that. Mm-hmm. It's love. Yeah. And and that's the thing I think, you know, I do understand that I, I think it's, it is important to see ourselves represented in celebrities and to help build solidarity. But there's so many different ways we can do that. And I think it's like you said, it's like if she feels that love and is happy, I am happy seeing her be happy on the internet. I'm just thrilled. Also, just being older now, things have changed and I've changed and I've grown. And I remember back in the day, it was that labels were more important. I have tried to evolve. That I think speaks to the longevity of your career, right? Like you can't be a successful performer for 30 years without finding new moments to kind of grow or learn and try, right? And I think even the way language surrounding sexuality and and gender has evolved from when I was a child, right? Like even in the 30 years I've been alive, (laughs) there is an evolution happening where even I see doors opening and I'm like, wow, okay, now I'm starting to feel old because this new generation is discovering new ways to talk about this complicated thing. And I think it goes back to what you said, right? If the effort and the heart uh, and the openness is there, I think it's a moment for us all to grow together. When I first came out to my family, my family was constantly struggling with what they felt they could say or couldn't say around me. There's a, a whole slew of words in Spanish you can use to refer to a gay man, some of which are a bit oh, unsavory, I know a lot of right? Them. Yeah, right? So it's like <laughs> maricón or marica. Maricon. That's, yeah, mm-hmm. maricón. That's, it's slang, but it also comes, it's kind of like a, a faggot, kind of like an yeah. F word sometimes, right? And, and my uncle used to jokingly call all my other uncles that word. And then when I came out, he was like, you know, I say with love, right? And I <laughs> he was like, I'm trying not to say it, but when I say it, I don't mean it that way. And I was like, we're going to grow together on this, but I do, I understand you don't mean ill toward me. And I think those are beautiful moments of honesty with each other, right? Where it's like, we're all kind of messing up a little bit and we're growing together. I told my parents when I first came out, again, I went to the gay bookstore to buy a book on how to come out to your family. And that was literally the name of the book, How to Come Out to Your Family. And I read it. I did all of the exercises in it. One of the things they said was allow your parents to ask stupid questions, or like you said, say stupid things, as long as they're willing to grow with you rather than get angry. Yeah, I have even had people online say very cruel things to me, things that probably wouldn't have gotten to me pre-internet, but with internet, you're just accessible to everyone. Rather than attack them, I have tried to write very compassionate messages back to them. And more often than not, they've become fans. But having said that, believe me, there is a very dark, raging side of me as well (laughs) that I don't deny. And anybody that tries to deny that side, stay away from them. (laughs) But I do try to find that balance. Creating Coco was really a part of that balancing happening within Mm. myself. Because I do believe that even though drag is funny, haha, for me, it was psychologically healing to finally own who I am. And I'm thrilled nowadays that young kids, 11 years old and writing me, 
letters about coming out to their parents or wanting to do drag or they're trans. It's just amazing to me. Oh man, I love that. And I, you know, I do want to ask, a lot of live performers have been in a weird space in the in the past year, right? There is something about that live aspect to drag and stage performance. It does feel healing. It provides this connection. You know, I'm, I mean, you know, I do stand up comedy and maybe that's a little less healing, but it's still, there's still a connection there, right? Yeah. You know, I'm wondering what has the pandemic been like creatively and personally for you and maybe what's in store after? What are you excited and eager to get to once this is over, to use that phrase? (laughs) I will say, yes, it has been traumatizing for everybody. There's also uh, something that's happened to me recently where I feel, I think it has to do with seeing the tears of people getting vaccines. (laughs) You're starting to realize you're not anywhere on that tier for a while. (laughs) And you start to feel like your career is dispensable. And there was an aspect of that at the beginning of the pandemic when all our jobs disappeared. Thank God for the fans. Thank God for producers that came forward and says, listen, we've got this format and we could do shows online with you. And so I've been able to be supported by my fans. But there's just been a roller coaster ride of emotions around that. And you're right, the intimacy of looking in another person's face and having that moment together is like church. It is healing. That's the part of it I miss. I'm looking forward to number one, getting on a plane and visiting my 94-year-old mother. And then after that, my husband and I are hoping to go back to his home of Spain. We go every year. So of course, this year we weren't able to go. So we'd like to go visit his family and our friends there. And then of course, getting back to work. And I've had some physical issues with my feet and I have a bad leg from an accident I had years ago. So some of that stuff I'm going to, I think, have to start to incorporate into my shows a little bit more of... (laughs) She might not be standing for the whole <laughs> hour and 15 minutes. <laughs> you know, those things. I, I, You know what's amazing? Uh, maybe you'll start to discover this as you age, but you could stay healthy and moving and whatnot. But I realize that when you're working and you're out on the road, if you're experiencing pain, you just push yourself through it. And as soon as this pandemic hit, it was like my body just said, okay, now we can deal with all this pain you've been having. So that was, that's was that been another emotional roller coaster ride of having to acknowledge that I've pushed my Myself so hard that I'm paying for it now. When you're out on the road and distracted, you can forget about it. Well, I think it's also an important reminder, right, that like when we think about performers like drag queens or anybody who travels and performs for a living, there's not always that security in terms of healthcare either or job security, right, if you can't perform. And we talk a lot about, you know, wanting to support the creative queer artists. But I think that's a thing that a lot of fans maybe don't think about, right, when an artist reaches a point where maybe their health doesn't allow them to perform live anymore or performing live becomes uh, taxing in a way it didn't. And, you know, I think those are always questions at the top of my head. How can we support performers when they can't perform? And I think this pandemic has kind of put that to the test, right? And I am so glad to see that there are online options, but they aren't the same, right? I I guess. They're not the same, (laughs) but I have felt one thing is to have people pay a price to your show because that's the way it's done. And then to see a packed audience, you feel appreciated. During this pandemic, I've made my shows available to everybody and it's pay what you can because I didn't want people who can't afford it to be excluded, especially now when we're all feeling lonely and trying to connect. What's been amazing to me is how generous my fans have been and the ones who can't afford anything, right? Like, I'm so sorry, but thank you for it. So it has been healing to feel valued even when they monetarily can't show that to you, that they take the time to write me something. All of that has really meant a lot to me and I don't take it for granted at all. 
But through this pandemic and feeling somewhat dispensable in the grand scheme of a career, having my fans support me this way is really cherished and really acknowledged so much so in my heart. I didn't think I could feel any more appreciative of my audience. And I do. I really do. So beautiful. I think that is a lovely time to take a break. That is a really a nourishing bit of information. That's a, a silver lining to all of this. Um, we are going to take a little break. And when we come back, we are going to be talking about an exciting event that's coming up in 2022 that is also in store, hopefully post-pandemic. But we're also going to introduce a new game I'm calling Queerly Beloved. So we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with our guest, Coco Peru. And we are back on the Queerty Podcast with our guest, Coco Peru. Coco, we were talking a little bit about the opportunities that you've had to connect with fans during the pandemic, and also maybe a little bit about what might come after, if we dare imagine such a scenario. And you've got a very exciting project coming up with some other very legendary drag queens, folks like Lady Bunny, Jackie Beat, Varla Jean Merman, these names. What are you cooking up with these other queens? And talk to me a little bit about this really exciting cruise opportunity in 2022. I just think this is a legendary matchup. I'm thrilled about this. <laughs> We're all laughing amongst ourselves about like, are people really going to do this trip with us? But it seems like people are really excited about it. It's called Legends of Drag Cruise. An appropriate name. Yes. yes. <laughs> they can go to legendsofdragcruise.com slash legendscoco. And it's in January of 2022. Perfect. We were approached about doing a cruise together, celebrating some old school drag queens. Even after Drag Race, there was sort of a slump for some of us that mm -hmm. were out on the road doing shows. Uh, we suddenly weren't being hired as much. And I saw like a 40% decrease in what I was taking home because the work was drying up because of RuPaul's Drag Race being on television and, and suddenly a demand for those queens. And then it started to come back. They started to realize, well, we can't can't forget about the ones that created this moment and what they do. A lot of the Rue girls that I'm friends with before they were on the show and after, they all wanted to include us as well in different things. So I'm thrilled that young people have discovered us either independent of that show or through their love of drag because of that show. Mm. And so I think this is an opportunity, this cruise, to be with us together. And I do want to point out that when I signed on to do this and I had signed the contract, I wasn't aware that they were spot spotlighting the four of us. I thought they were spotlighting many more. So when I found out that it was just the four of us that they were spotlighting, I just want to be very clear that I did make a call to the people that were producing this cruise and said, you do realize that there's no people of color in this lineup. And the person I spoke to was very receptive. The thing is, I think in their, their thinking, and I just want to assure people who might have thought that when they look at the photograph of the four of us, that there is special guests as well. And I think within that that special guest, there will definitely be people of color. I just wished personally, I requested that there be a person of color, a queen of color in that lineup. It's wonderful for you to use your platform that way as well, to think about that. I just think you can't, after this year, your head can't be underground anymore. I mean, it's just so clear what has happened in this country. But now with the internet, now with what's happening in this country, with the conversations that are happening, it's just ridiculous not to think of those things and to want to include and celebrate your 
sisters of all yeah. walks and colors and everything. Absolutely. I mean, that's it's what makes our community shine kind of the fact that even amongst our differences, we do sort of share this the same sort of experience of being marginalized and, and this connection of kind of operating outside the quote unquote conventional. And I, I think it's beautiful to lift up every corner and aspect of that community and everything we do as performers. And I've spent most of my career as a solo performer. The opportunity to perform with some of the other queens has always been just so much fun. That's why I'm looking forward to this cruise. You know, you mentioned that you started off as sort of an autobiographical, almost like a storytelling kind of style of performance. Do you find that now maybe what you might bring on a tour with these other queens is different? I guess what sort of material or performance is speaking to you lately? I mean, I still do what I do and that's what I'm known for. Yeah. And it's interesting because I've seen other queens now begin to write those kind of shows. But I think young people now appreciate it more, the storytelling aspect of it and also the intimacy that that creates and that they come away actually feeling something like they've had a good laugh, but they also thought about things or they can. So I always try to make my shows, although they're very personal, they're also very universal Mm -hmm. so that my story becomes everybody's story. That's just what I do. But when I see Lady Bunny up there talking like some (laughs) ridiculous, (laughs) hateful thing... I'm howling and cackling. I love drag in general. And I love, you know, I remember when I first started, there were a lot of some important people in the theater telling who appreciated what I did and thought of it as theater. They were telling me, do not call yourself a drag queen. Oh, wow. You're limiting your career. And I would tell them it was a drag queen that first inspired me. I love drag queens. I'm proud to call myself a drag queen. You need to open up your mind about what drag can encompass. So you're thinking drag is just one thing, which even that one thing, which at the time was a lip syncing drag queen Mm -hmm. in a bar. (laughs) Yeah. And to them, the way they even referred to it, it was less than. And to me, it wasn't ever less than. It served a purpose. And it was a lip syncing drag queen that inspired me in Peru. To me, it was like, Drag is bigger. It's diverse. And so you had Joey Arias at Bardot and Sherry Vine and and you had Flotilla DeBarge. And and then you had Candace Kane who danced so beautifully and, uh, you know, would end up in the street dancing and (laughs) looking at it through the bar window, (laughs) stopping traffic. You know, so I have wonderful memories of what drag was at that time and that it was so much bigger than what even some people in our own community thought it could be. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Even just you mentioning those names, I get chills because those are, they're icons that, you know, you don't learn about, you learn about through nightlife. There's no history book or one source or documentary that mentions all these people. Like these are, I don't know, these are names that when I came to New York, I found community through nightlife, right? I dipped my toes into baby drag and was terrible at it. I did a bit of storytelling. I found my lane was stand-up comedy. That's my, <laughs> that's what I excel at, right? But in these spaces, you you find community and you also hear about these legacies and you run into these people. And it's why, like, I remember, I'm, God, I'm forgetting her name now, running into DJ Lena, who introduced me to Candace Kane for the first mm-hmm. time because they were close, um, hearing about you at Metropolitan in Brooklyn and then going on to find your videos online, which, by the way, at the very beginning of the pandemic, I do need to thank you because you, you really got me through it. My boyfriend lives in Ohio and we would watch your videos just regularly. Regularly, 
um, when you visited the world market and reviewed the products, um, when you talk about getting tea, it's just so fun. And we would watch those videos together and then just kind of debrief and talk about them and laugh. And it's beautiful. So thank you for that, first of all. Thank you. But secondly, it is great to also see, I don't know, just sort of this legacy that is still performing, is still involved in shaping what our art and our craft is. And that's, to me, thrilling. Yeah. And I think it's important. I mean, obviously, I want to stay uh, relevant, but I, I think beyond just my own ego, it is important to recognize our past and even beyond, I'm, even beyond me, the people that came before me. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm riding on the shoulders of people that came before me. And I've, I never forget that. I have pictures in my mind of when I started writing Coco. I have pictures in my mind of some drag queens being arrested. Oh, wow. And there were, there were some um, old footage of them being put into a paddy wagon, waving <laughs> as they're being loaded into this police paddy wagon, still performing, still being glamorous as they're being arrested. And that for me was so powerful of an image. I thought, I want that. I want to be that powerful. So I made it a point, you know, to ride the subway in New York City sometimes in drag. I make it a point before the pandemic to go to my local Starbucks and sit there in full drag. And more often than not, people are wonderful. And I end up having really interesting conversations with complete strangers that probably Mm -hmm. wouldn't have happened if I was just ordinary. And so I always encourage young people to live in the extraordinary because that's where the magic happens. And sometimes you need to step outside of your comfort zone, outside of your box, because that's truly where life is exciting. So I challenge people. And if you need to set up a deadline for yourself to make that happen, then do it. I love that. Live in the extraordinary. That's I'm not going to forget that line. That's really incredible. Coco, thank you so much for sharing some of those memories and opinions and just going on this crazy ride with me today. This is just a really little silly way to close the show. I would like to introduce a new game called Queerly Beloved. And what we're going to do in this game is celebrate a person, a place or a thing that was once very popular, but is no longer that you think was cut short. When I think to my youth, I think about frosted tips, puka shell necklaces, things that I adored that maybe... Maybe they weren't gone too soon, if we're being honest, but it can be a trend. It can be a person. I would just love for you to maybe pick a a thing from your days past and give us five reasons why it should be back today. I think I have an answer. Oh, perfect. Women's shoes. You used to be able to find heels that were two inches (laughs) and maybe even had a little bit of girth to them. They weren't so (laughs) thin. I used to be able to find women's shoes very easily. And I no longer can find women's shoes that fit me because as soon as they get to a certain size, they, they become flats. And because of my handicap, I cannot wear a heel higher than two inches. I can't wear a thin heel. And so nowadays women are being tortured to wear these extreme heels. And I miss a day where a woman could go into a store or a drag queen and purchase a pair of heels with a decent heel that's not going to send me tipping over like a tree. And so um, so I have to offer you five reasons. Reason number one would be, uh, I believe that those high heels are torturous to women. <laughs> Two, you will pay dearly in podiatry bills. <laughs> 
<laughs> which I'm doing right now. Even wearing two-inch heels. And what else can I say about them? I don't know. I understand that maybe it's not a look that resonates. I'm off, I'm often made fun of because of my shoes. And so I'd like to normalize that look again. Honestly, those are three very <laughs> strong reasons. I will take them. You heard it here, folks. Miss Coco Peru says, bring back a low, chunky, sensible heel. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And we're doing it. We're doing it. I see these girls wearing these heels doing the death drops and I, I'm feeling it already. I'm thinking, oh, honey, you have no idea what you're in for. It's the boldness of youth. You know what I mean? Yes. I am freshly out of my 20s and I can't do the things that I used to be able to. Yeah. Miss Coco Peru, I am so thrilled and truly honored and very thankful that you joined us today. I would love to bring you back and talk anytime. Absolutely. You've been so kind and so gracious and so insightful. I'm a huge fan and I'm just was really happy to share time with you today. Before we officially wrap this up too, I want our audience to know where they can find you and more of your work, social media, websites, any upcoming online events. Share it all with us, please. Well, my website is misscocopru.com. Of course, I'm on Instagram, all the social media. I, I don't have a TikTok, but I'm, you know, Instagram, Facebook, and um, the other one. Twitter. <laughs> and I think the 12th um, is Liza Minnelli's birthday. And mm. I'm part of a celebration of her 75th birthday. Wow. And so I know I was looking at all the names of all these famous people and then Coca Peru. I was thrilled to be asked because she was one of my earliest fans. Wow. And would come see my show and quote it. And we became friends. And I have great stories about her. I don't tell them in this event. I'm just thanking her and, uh, for being so good to me early on in my career when it really mattered to have someone like Liza Minnelli get you. Yeah. And she was not shy of the queer community, obviously. Yes. Yeah. But she embraced drag. And when I first met, the first night I met her, I got up to perform at a piano and in a cabaret club and she was with Shirley MacLaine. It's a very wild story that I share in one of my shows because it truly was magical <laughs> in like eerie way, magical. But when I finished singing and went back to my table, she called me over and invited me to sit with her. And I just thought that was so cool that like Liza was like yeah. into the drag queen, this random drag queen and wanted to talk to me, you know, and that that was the beginning of our friendship. That is yeah. so beautiful. That's so cool. That was New York at yes, that time. Yes, right? Yeah. Okay, now, you know, every now, we, we did have an Adele sighting at Pieces once. We had a celebrity <laughs> every now and then. But I, okay, we got to get tickets to the cruise so we can hear the story. But if you want to hear a very moving tribute, that's you, you mentioned it was March 12th. You'll be part of this yes, event. That's yes, tonight. Yes. This airs on a Friday. So I think that'll be tonight then. Tonight, yeah, you can go on. To, but it's it's repeating like two more times. Oh, great, yeah. cool. Oh, well, thank you again. And uh, Miss Coco Peru on all social platforms, MissCocoPeru.com. You can find me, your host, Gabe Gonzalez, online using the handle Gaybones, G-A-Y-B-O-N-E-Z. Thank you again, Coco Peru, for coming on the show, a true genuine legend and icon. That, unfortunately, is all we have time for today. I hope and pray that we can bring Miss Coco Peru back to talk to us more about these magical stories and spell all the tea on Liza Minnelli and the golden age of, of drag in New York. Every age is a golden age of drag in New York. You can 
also support the QWERTY podcast online wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe, rate, and review our show right now. And you can get your QWERTY fix every day at QWERTY.com. You can read some of the stories we talked about. QWERTY has been a joint production between Forever Dog and Q Digital. QWERTY is hosted by me, Gabe Gonzalez, produced by Andrew McGuire, engineered and edited by Shireen Lonnie Yunez, music by Gabe Lopez, executive produced by Joe Cilio, Brett Boehm, Alex Ramsey, Scott Gatz, John Halbach, Dan Tracer, and Melissa D. Montz. Forever!